Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues here in Central Virginia. My name is Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. right here on WTJU 91 FM and also podcasting as part of the TJ FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Later in the show, we hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Galeska, plus an interview with Tamara L. Dykus on her book titled, Who is the Black Queen Califia of Golden California? But right now, we're joined here in the studio by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporters Emily Hayes and Charlotte Woods. Well, as we do each week, we check in with Charlottesville Tomorrow for local news and information. In the studio with us this week is Emily Hayes, news reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow, as well as Charlotte Woods, also a reporter over there. Welcome and greetings. Thank you for having us. <laughs> you all have been really putting your uh, shoulder to the grindstone here. Is that a metaphor? Uh, with the voter guide, uh, the election guide for local elections coming up on Tuesday, June 11th for the primary. Take me through uh, the voter guide and the, the races that we can expect. So uh, this first phase we really launched with the races that have primaries. Um, So we're looking at city council, which has five candidates um, that are running in the Democratic primary and then two more independents, which I will focus on those later. Um, And then board of supervisors, one of the districts, one of the three districts that has elections right now actually has a primary. Uh, So that's Ravana. Um, There's also the 57th House District, and Senate 17 is actually a crowded race. We've got a Democratic and a Republican primary. So there's five city council candidates running. Take me through uh, what the voter guide has to say about them. So of the five city council candidates, a lot of them are very sim- uh, in the primaries. A lot of them are very have very similar stances on things like uh, transportation, uh, addressing climate change, addressing affordable housing. Um, mm-hmm. Really, just it's they're so similar in a lot of those regards that it's really more about focusing on the individual nuances. Uh, For instance, Bob Fenwick, he focuses on special use permits. Um, He takes issue with sometimes he feels those kind of get misused. Um, You've got some candidates like Cena McGill, Lloyd Snook, that are really in favor of accessory dwelling units and incentivizing those in existing R1 housing. Um, You see a candidate like Michael Payne, who's very much pushing for um, creating more affordable housing, improving the affordable housing that already exists. Um, And a lot of the candidates do call in favor of some limited a little bit or a lot of zoning reform. Mm-hmm. I mean, affordable housing has seemed kind of like the issue for you know a couple of years now uh, mm-hmm. around town. Just it's very expensive to live here compared to the average income. What uh, stands out between these candidates? I report about affordable housing a lot. Um, one thing that I, Michael Payne has direct, he's part of the Charlottesville um, Low Income Housing Coalition. So I have gotten to see his um, sort of policy proposals a little bit more closely. And he, he's interested in the city buying um, actual, buying uh, apartments that are already low income but don't really have subsidized, you know, uh, rents. They're just sort of naturally like that. And if they're about to get bought by someone else, he wants the city to buy that. And that was sort of prompted by a different story I wrote about the Belmont apartments a couple weeks back. Oh, and Cena McGill supports something very similar too. She wants to create like a housing strike fund where anytime there's property that's about to go live, the city could just preemptively purchase it and specifically use it to increase affordable housing opportunities. 
switching gears a little bit over to the the House district, this is kind of a big year for that one because David Toscano, who's who's served in that seat for decades, uh, or at least a decade and a half, um, is retiring. He's stepping stepping down. So we've got Sally Hudson and Kathy Galvin both running for that seat. Uh, take me through what the candidate guide has to say about them. So it's interesting because you've got essentially two UVA professors, because um, Galvin is an adjunct faculty member. She's also currently a city council member. Um, and then you've got Sally Hudson, who teaches economics as an associate professor. They share a lot of, again, similar ideas on some things, but they do stand apart on a few ideas. Like, um, I believe Hudson is more in favor of addressing Dillon rule in the state of Virginia, which limits local government authority on certain things. Um, meanwhile, Galvin is more in support of keeping it, but also finding where you can not, you don't need to go quite all the way to home rule, but you can make adjustments for locality to, localities to have specific autonomy for certain things. And that was a big deal for the 57th district because of the monuments. Um, Delegate Toscano has submitted a couple years in a row now legislation that would allow localities to determine what to do with their monuments. It has been dying in subcommittees and both women support support kind of reintroducing something along those lines should either one of them get elected. Mm-hmm. Um, Hudson also, she wants to address health care because at a, there was a time in 2017 where this part of the state almost had basically a monopoly and it was really driving rates up. Um, Galvin is very interested in transportation. Um, she wants to increase transportation in the region and in the state. And uh, I mean, she she practices what she preaches. She rides her bike everywhere. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, it sounds like in both the city council race and to some extent this house district race, the, the issues are very similar. The, they're, they're all Democrats with similar issues they put at the front, fairly similar policy proposals, at least in some respects. But there's a, there's a difference in maybe the style of how they do the politics or, or the kind of fight they've got in them. Does the, does the guide capture that? To a degree. Um, I would say really pay attention to the responses within the questionnaire. I curated questions race by race uh, for every single candidate to be asked the exact same questions. And then they had, you know, between 250 to 300 word response. Some people went over, but definitely pay attention to what compare and contrast what each candidate says being asked the exact same question. It kind of creates like a level playing field for you to um, determine as a voter what resonates most with you. Mm -hmm. And you did a, a special feature on millennials running for office this year. Yes, I focused on the city and the county um, because I noticed that Michael Payne is exactly my age and uh, Gerard Smith is just slightly like maybe two or three years older. Mm-hmm. And so we had a sit down Q&A recently just kind of talking about city and county collaboration areas where the, you know, the governments don't need to be as siloed and they can communicate more. But we also talked about, you know, what perspectives and, uh, you know, abilities they think they can bring to the table if elected, just being so much younger than everyone else. Mm-hmm. What uh, what do they have to say uh, as far as the, the, I mean, generational politics only goes so far, but at the same time, there's a different sort of set of cultural things you grew up with. Uh, they both addressed the fact that climate change has been a, they feel a, a large concern for them being just millennial candidates who have grown up always kind of in that atmosphere of, oh, we need to pay attention to this. Oh, we need to start planning and being more resilient. How can we um, you know, combat climate change as the effects are starting to become more apparent. And nationwide, we're getting more and more people in a bipartisan manner addressing climate change and wanting to be more proactive and resilient in their policies. Um, and that's kind of going across the aisle. Um, as young candidates, they feel it's important to get involved, especially locally. Um, I know Gerard was saying that a lot of times local 
local government affects you faster, um, whereas federal can be a little slower or have a little bit more posturing. And they they feel like as millennial candidates, you don't just have to sit back and watch what happens. You can get involved and you can run for office and you can have your input um, and help shape the communities that you actually live in. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to turn to another story you all wrote about this week. A local philanthropist owns some land right next to Trump Winery. Uh, word got out a little bit. He's trying to uh, raise some money to raise a giant Mexican flag to uh, sort mm-hmm. of celebrate U.S.-Mexican partnership right there, uh, snubbing his nose at Trump Winery. Uh, take me through the story, Emily. Yeah, so this happened the day after um, President Donald Trump announced the tariff against products coming into the U.S. from Mexico, or, sorry, across that border. Um, so the, this local philanthropist, John Kluge Jr., um, is using his connection to Trump Winery to protest this policy. So um, he put his uh, GoFundMe up on Friday, the day after this, and um, it's like a $25,000 GoFundMe for, to raise a bandera monumental is what he's calling it. And I think it's not exactly a Mexican flag. I think it's going to be something designed by by um, an artist collective. And um, so some of the money goes to that, goes to a band to play at the hoisting ceremony. Um, this land is in southern uh, southern Almaral. It's inherited from the media mogul John W. Kluge Sr. Um, and right next door, the reason why Trump owns all this land is that uh, John Kluge's mom, Patricia Kluge, um, she was running a winery and it didn't do so well. And then in the sort of foreclosure process, um, Trump came in and, and bought all of that land. Um, so John Kluge Jr. said he's been considering what to do with the property um, and that this sort of prompted him to, to kind of come to a, an idea of what he wanted to do. Sure. Um, and I think he's planning other components on the property, like maybe an art gallery for, um, you know, Mexican-American artists or something like that. Um, so the a little bit more about the policies, if you guys haven't heard on the national level. But, sure. Um, you know, the tariff is specifically intended to to get Mexico to decrease the number of sort of Central American migrants arriving at the U.S. border. Mm-hmm. Um, and... John Kluge has um, his he's a social entrepreneur now. And um, so he has it's really important to him because he has this refugee investment network. um, And and so, you know, he's trying to tackle what he sees as the root causes, you know, of he's trying to empower, you know, business owners, uh, refugee business owners. So he sees this as like, you know, truly awful policy that he wanted to protest. Mm-hmm. It's a personal condition, not just uh, uh, abstract. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, you know, some people asked me, could he have, you know, done all of this himself? Did he really need to raise all the money? Um, <laughs> he said, no, he couldn't have. But even if he could have, he wanted it to be a collaborative project, um, even in, and people wanted to participate. Um, he also updated the GoFundMe to include some links to sort of direct service organizations that are sort of um, directly helping people who are, are migrants. So that includes um, locally Sin Barreras, the Charlottesville Immigrant Bond Fund, and the International Rescue Committee, among mm-hmm. some others. Uh, well, Emily, Charlotte, thanks for coming in. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. You can find out more and read all about these stories and more at seavilletomorrow.org. 
You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the TEEJ FM Network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU and TEEJ FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on this show are, of course, just that, opinions, not the position of the University of Virginia. Up next, we hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Galeska. Well, here on Soundboard, we check in with state news each week. And as we turn to state news, we check in with our reporter, Peter Galaska. He's based in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Morning. So let's start with the kind of newsy story today. Uh, Ralph Northam, governor of Virginia, is going to call a special session for gun safety legislation following the tragedy in Virginia Beach last week. Uh, Take me through what's going on. Yeah, once again, um, it sounds so um, horrible to repeat, there was another mass shooting this time um, in a uh, municipal building in Virginia Beach uh, at their central government center. And um, 12 people were killed, um, and so was the shooter. Um, There was apparently a disgruntled employee who had just resigned that day who burst on the scene with um, semi-automatic handguns with extended magazines and... uh, and sound suppressors, so people couldn't really tell the difference between a gunshot and, say, a, a nail gun. In any event, this has brought out um, you know, more cries of anguish and, 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 and everything else. So now Ralph Northam says it's really time to finally address this in Virginia, and so he's going to hold a special session at the end of this uh, month to uh, the General Assembly to, to consider a number of proposals. And, of course, the Republicans who have been effectively killing significant gun control measures for years are howling about it. Exactly. And so this has been a, um, an issue that, that always gets stalled. Uh, and this time around, the GOP leadership has kind of given a collective shrug on this. What, uh, what do you think will happen? Well, it's, it's kind of, t- it's kind of t- touch and go, because on the one hand, I think polls are showing that Virginians, as people are in many areas, are really sick and tired of um, you know having a mass shooting and then have the politicians say now's not the time to, now's the time for grief not you know action, which to his credit is exactly what uh, Ralph Northam is saying is not what you sh- we should do we should do something about this. The problem was is that um, anytime you even touch a gun in Virginia as far as controls, especially the Republican uh, the rural Republicans I mean really come after it and say no you can't do that for uh, Second Amendment rights are going to come for our guns. And that resonates with a lot of people. But there's some significant steps that Northam could take, uh, even though he is weakened politically by his uh, blackface scandal. Um, And also there are elections this November, so this could be a way that he could either, A, really get something going on gun control if the people really want it, or fail miserably and further erode his position. We'll see. What are some of the steps he could take that uh, presumably he's betting would not weaken his position, but actually... For example, um, these extended uh, magazines that you can stick into handguns, what you're getting is that with these extendo things that will give you, you know, three times the firepower, perhaps, before you have to change the magazine. And if you're on a rampage in an office building or a school somewhere, you can get off a lot of shots. The second thing is sound suppressors, which supposedly have been um, regulated for years, you need a, a special ta- uh, background check and a, a stamp from the uh, ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Group, to get one. The problem is, is that um, you know if you're going to you know somehow duck and cover or run and scoot or whatever your, your defense strategy is, if you're caught into one of the, in one of these situations, if you could really hear the, the retort of the of the gun, whatever it is, you know where to run from. 
But when you have a sound suppressor, you can't tell where it's from. So it might cost you some crucial seconds that could have saved your life. Right. So these are the kinds of things. That and bump stocks, of course, which are the kinds of contraptions that allow semi-automatic uh, weapons like AR-15s to go fully automatic. But these are just some of the things that every time you have a mass shooting, and every time there's this, you come up, everybody comes up with the same arguments about, well, we shouldn't do it because of this reason, or we shouldn't do it because of that reason. So what happens? Nothing. All right, Peter, I want to shift gears to talk about the future of newspapers. You and I have visited this from time to time. Here in Charlottesville, Siva Weekly just ran a piece about the Daily Progress, which is right. uh, owned by Warren Buffett's company. Uh, it's a bigger story than just local, but they are going to jack up their, their subscription rates. And tell me what you think is going on. What's, what's... Well, as most newspapers have, what they've done is that they found that they can't, their advertising won't support print that much anymore. So they've got to grow their online, but online's hard to get money from. So what they're trying to do is a number of papers are, including the Richmond Times-Dispatch, which is also owned by Berkshire Hathaway. They are going to you know, pretty much double or certainly significantly increase your annual subscription for um, you know, both online and print. And this is to supposedly, the corporate rationale is to you know, provide you with uh, inexpensive or, or accessible information when you want it and still have some quality journalism left, which is something of a specious argument because it's basically we're going to charge you more and give you less. Uh, which doesn't usually work in the general world of business, but we'll see. So in the long term, though, you and I have talked about this before. I mean, what happens to, uh, what's the business model for the future for, for meeting the information well, it's really needs? It's hard to say because, I mean, I've been a journalist now for 45 years, and um, my anniversary is this month. And um, I'm just fine. That, you know, people have been warning about the net and how it needs to, people need to prepare for it since at least the 90s. And um, no one really did it. Part of the problem was is a lot of the print media were monopolies that enjoyed like really fat 25% margins, meaning that for every dollar they earned, 25% uh, of that was profit. And um, so be, they, they had no real competition. So anyway, they just they, they, the managements were kind of entrenched, especially in companies like Media General, which used to own, own these papers. Um, and so, you know, no one did anything. And it was too late. So I don't know what's going to happen. Um, well, and that's just it. You've got some papers with national brands like The Post and The New York Times and a few others, and some that are still you know, regional hubs that might be able to make it work. But a lot of these smaller markets and small towns, just what, how do they get their information needs now? Social media is not. Well, it's really hard to do. I mean, you, know, you would think that hyper-local coverage is really the way to go. And that could be. It could be. But um, the only papers, Buffett now says that newspapers are dust except for big brands like the Journal or the Times or the Washington Post. And the other alternatives would be nonprofits, uh, sort of like uh, Virginia Mercury is a good example, just popped up last year, which is a really pretty good news outlet. Yeah, here in Charlottesville, we've got Charlottesville Tomorrow kind of also in the nonprofit news model. Yeah, well, that's just to you know, keep the reporters you know, so they can have bread on the table and, and things like that. But the golden years are way over. Um, I hate to see it because I think it's a great profession, but um, I don't know what else to say about it. Well, let's shift gears from uh, uh, journalists not making much money to people at the state who do make a whole lot of money. Uh, every now and then a, 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 a newspaper around here will check in on how much state workers are paid and, and look at some of the highest paid state employees. Um, there's a couple at the Virginia retirement system, actually several at the Virginia retirement system, who are among the highest paid, uh, basically investment bankers working for the state, making more than half a million dollars a year. Uh, take me through the story. Yeah, well, the most recent figures came out in March. I think the Richmond Times-Dispatch reported them. Uh, 
uh, total compensation for Ronald D. Schmitz, who's the chief investment officer of the Virginia Retirement System, is $852,941. And that is significantly more than the governor makes, or the lieutenant governor, or the attorney general. And I'm sure that there are a number of, of uh, Virginia Retirement System people who are making a lot of money. Now, this is no surprise. I mean, um, this always comes up, and if you talk to Vir- Virginia Retirement System, which is notoriously closed mouth, you try to talk to them. Uh, in any event, they'll say that for us to get really quality financial people, we're competing against you know Goldman Sachs, Standard & Poor's, and some of the big, huge uh, you know, uh, retirement investment houses, and they pay their people like lots of money. So if we're going to get somebody as sharp as they are, um, that we have to really pay. I understand market rate for financial investors. Uh, at the same time, VRS was was uh, you know two and a half percent lower than just the Dow index this year. I mean, they literally could have just stuck the money in the Dow and made more than they did last year. Well, I mean that that's true. I mean, you get into some trouble when you do that because I mean it depends on on how you know you the timing of the Dow when you're placing and things like that. Uh, the general argument, though, is that supposedly the the best people cost money, if you believe that. I mean, you know, that's that's the argument. And I don't know whether, <clears throat> I mean, the thing is, every time I've dealt with the retirement system um, as a reporter, which has been a few times, it's been like pulling teeth because they're, they're not very transparent. Um, and they're not going to exactly, I don't think, welcome a debate into compensation of their top people. Um, and, you know, the people who can make that debate happen would be the General Assembly. And whether they are or not, I don't know. Right. All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, okay. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the THFM Network. T-E-E-J dot F-M. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. In our final segment, we hear from author Tamara L. Dykus, whose book is called Who is the Black Queen Khalifa of Golden, California? In addition to her writing, Tamara L. Dykus is a Tuskegee University Chemical Engineering Honors alumna, a former student of the Thomas Jefferson School of Law, and the founder and owner of the organization California Is Me. Hi, my name is Ms. Tamara L. Dykus, and my, my book is Who is the Black Queen Calafia of Golden California, the Real Wonder Woman. So I was I was invited to California, and, we, and then when I returned, I had this, like, aura about me and my uh, fat uh, design examiner, you know, Fred Rashida. She was like, well, where, you know, where'd you just come back from? And I'm like, oh, you know, uh, California, you know. So she really has this, like, you know, I call her my black girl magic friend. So before I left law school, I, you know, I did more research at the Library of Congress because she had suggested that we look up the name, you know, because she saw my spirit was so revived. And, you know, and I did. I had a great time. And uh, I really enjoyed myself at Beverly Hills. So (laughs) then after, you know, we decided to look into the name online, because it's out there, you know, the information is out there. You just have to connect the dots and 
you've got to do a lot of connecting of the dots in, at the Library of Congress. I also went later to Harvard University, and I put all that research as well in my book. But, um, I, you know, I woke with, like, a new joy, and I just kept jumping up and down. <laughs> I was like, you know, it's an ancient day in California, and, you know, this is the etymology, you know, the origins of the word. And I just kept exclaiming, California is me, California is me, and um then I thought, well, I'll trademark it, and that's that's how I got started. And then I just decided to do, a, do you know, start a company because I thought, well, people should know this. You know, nobody knew it. Um, so I was running around to all of my friends, you know, in D.C. at different, you know, uh, federal government agencies, asking them, getting getting their take on it. Then since I figured, well, gosh, nobody knew, and then I just pieced together from all of that, and people were telling me, oh, yeah, you know, this sounds like the Wonder Woman story. I was like, yes, it is, you know. <laughs> so that's kind of how we got, you know, two birds and what's sewed. And D.C., it doesn't take that long for information to be solidified. A lot of people compared Queen Calafia's story with the Wonder Woman story. So what do you want uh, people to take away from Queen Calafia's story? Well, the strength, you know, the beauty, the courage, the power, the truth. This is the fact that California means this glorious, fun name, and it's we can have it be a balm to slavery in some kind of a sense. Because, as I explain in my book, you know, where it's 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 impactful and it's powerful because it tells a story of before we were enslaved, you know, and Black history doesn't just start with slavery. Yeah, it does talk, you know, we were somebody before we came over here. And, uh, you know, we belong to, as Africans, in some village, and while most, you know, black people, descendants of slavery in America are of mixed race because uh, of slavery, creating a, uh, or enslavement, um, creating a new race of people from African, European, and Native American blood, you know, now we have another story or a story that talks about the beauty. You talked about how the Confederate general covered Queen Calafia's photo. So I'm wondering, how is Queen Calafia's story relevant today, particularly in Virginia? Well, I mean, <laughs> recently we've seen what our own uh, Governor Northrop and, and his, uh, you know, wife from showing blackface and KKK pictures, whether it was him or or not. Um, You know, these are hurtful and painful lynching legacies and, you know, stories of rape, I I would have to say, subjugation, because um, a lot of these, you know, African women and descendants thereof didn't have a choice, as we saw in 12 Years a Slave and other you know, slave-based movies. These images for black people are, are very... You know, while we're fighting racism, while we're fighting identity on a day-to-day basis, we had to have a better standard for our leadership in these states. And it just shows that, you know, Virginia's legacy of the slaveholding states of the Confederacy, which it states in the in their constitution, and Richmond, Virginia being the headquarters of uh, the Confederacy, uh, it starts to paint a picture that these just old habits uh, die hard. So, though Virginia is for lovers, there's definitely haters in the in the state as well. And these racist spirits 
he just it goes deep and and it goes all the way back to the guy uh, who drew the Confederate drawn seal. So it's just evidence of this cultural war that's going on uh, coast to coast from Virginia to now we know California because uh, California is technically the only union state that has a Confederate drawn seal. And it's like, why don't we know this? Um, <laughs> you know, why why are they just covering up and acting like uh, this doesn't, you know, exist? And recently, uh, there there's a lot of evidence that I've looked um, into. I've, I've started another campaign called California Censored while I was in law school. And I'm going around giving presentations on that in conjunction with the book to just kind of let people know that it even goes deeper. So hopefully... Um, with us shining a light on this, we can get past this as a country. You know, we are the United States of America, and unfortunately there are just some people that want to be enemies of the state and want to um, maintain this racial and uh, hatred and bigotry, but we can do better. We have come far as a, as a nation, and we will continue we just have to keep shining a light on these on these issues, and together, I think you know we'll we'll definitely get to a better place and and, and solve it. But uh, yeah, the, the the civil war is over, <laughs> and we're not going back. Each one, teach one. That's what our ancestors said. So let's keep it going. Yes, thank you so much, Tamara, for just doing this interview, and I wish you the best with all your success. Oh, thank you. I wish thank you so much. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Moreno Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Have a great week.